Robert Half Research indicates 9 out of 10 hiring managers are having difficulty hiring. If you have open roles, chances are you're feeling this too. That's why you need Robert Half. Our specialized recruiting professionals engage with our proprietary AI to connect businesses of all sizes with highly skilled talent in finance and accounting, technology, marketing and creative, legal, and administrative and customer support. At Robert Half, we know talent. Visit roberthalf.com today. Welcome to the Fantasy Baseball Today podcast from CBS Sports. Oh, and first pitch crushing! Deep left field! This is Welcome Got a fantasy question? Email fantasybaseball at cbsi.com. Get ready to win your league. Where Here's Frank, Scott, and Chris. Position previews roll on, and today we're talking first base. Welcome into Fantasy Baseball today on Tuesday, February 7th. Frank Stanfield joined by Scott White and Chris Towers, and we'll be breaking down everything first base related on today's podcast, as was the case yesterday. Let's start with a little outlook, strategy talk. Scott, we'll start with you. There is a lot of talent at this position, both up top, in the middle rounds of the draft, later on in the draft. But oftentimes, I find myself waiting. Scott, how would you describe the first base position this season? Leaving pitchers out of it, just looking at the hitter spots. This is First base is one of three positions where you can afford to wait. I think there are three positions where you can afford to wait, and there are three positions where you can't. Two of the three where you can afford to wait, You know, one of them we just talked about, catcher, then first base. Shortstop is the third. Uh, so like, I feel like... Certainly for the way I draft, you have to take advantage of those opportunities to wait. And the reason it is a position to wait, I think it's, I think, I'm, I'm theorizing anyway, that just like there's a, a return to position scarcity now that we're out of the juice ball era, that means that first base again has this advantage where it has, where it's, where it's very high, or I'm sorry, very low defensive threshold allows big bats to accumulate there. Um, and we're actually going to feel it again because it's not so easy for those smallish middle infielders to hit home runs. So, And, and I um, don't think it's just that. To, okay, to I, part of it's also, we'll, we'll see, I think in the coming years, the shift changes I think are going to mean that teams are less willing to, the, the example I always go to just because it stands out so much in my mind was Mike Moustakis playing second base when he got to the Brewers. Teams are going to be less willing to put a Max Muncy or a Mike Mustakas, you know, a, a prototypical corner guy at second base. And I think, you know, when we get to second base, I think we'll talk about second base being a little shallower. And I think that both of those two things in the coming years are going to play a part in kind of a shift across the defensive spectrum. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. Um, so what we saw from first base last year was a bunch of, home run hitters emerge, but that can be kind of a double-edged sword in fantasy because like it's, it's a deep position, but it's like young money, you know, it's, it's like deep with a bunch of players who haven't shown they can do it year after year. Guys like Christian Walker and Nate Lowe and Rowdy Telez. Um, in, in terms of like high end reliable talent, first base isn't any deeper than we've seen in recent years. It's, it's basically the same uh, four or five guys we've been talking about for, for the past several <laughs> years. 
for as deep as it is, like you could still miss at the position because you just draft the guy who doesn't follow up on his big performance last year. And yet I'm still willing to take that chance, ideally, in an ideal world, because it's so much more important to fill third base, second base, and outfield early. Yeah, that's exactly how I feel, too. I mean, in most drafts, I think I would rather take a Devers or an Austin Riley in round two over a Pete Alonzo or a Jose Altuve or Marcus Semien in round three over Matt Olson because the first baseman that you can get, you know, post 150 in your draft are going to be better than the second or third baseman that you can get post 150. So whenever I look at these player combinations, I always kind of find myself leaning on all right, let's take the third baseman, second baseman early, and then kind of fall back on first base. Uh, Chris, do you... Plus, plus, and I know I'm talking a lot here, but uh, because I I feel like it is going to be a position where offense kind of accumulates again, even if you do miss, let's say you take Christian Walker and he's a total bust this year. I feel like this is the position where you can feel most confident new talent is going to emerge over the course of the season. In fact, there are several rookies that I feel really excited to draft at this position, even if I miss out on the Christian Walker class. And we'll get to those a little bit later on when we get to sleepers, breakouts, and bust. Chris, how are you looking at the first base position? What is your early strategy in the drafts that you've done? Uh, I I think I I probably take a a nips strategy when it comes to first base. It's no intentional positional strategy. And that's not to say that I do that across the board, but with first, with first base, like I think it mostly just depends on where you're drafting, right? Like if you're picking 10th, there's a decent chance you're going to take a first baseman just because Freddie Freeman or Vladimir Guerrero is probably going to be one of the best players who's available at one of your two picks. If you pick in the first, you know, in the top three, you know, you may end up with Pete Alonso in the second or third round, but I think it's much more likely. It's more much more dependent on where you are in the draft order. I think is going to to influence how I approach the position. But yeah, the the one thing with first base and you know this this idea that because of the shifting landscape, first base might become what you know certainly I grew up being accustomed to, which is like first base is the slow plotting power hitting position and it may return to being that but it's also worth keeping in mind that you know if you miss out on the the top tier at first base and you settle for a christian walker and he doesn't hit you know you might be able to find 25 home runs at first base you know that's going to be easier there than any other position will you be able to find batting average will you be able to find stolen bases the latter almost certainly not (laughs) there's not many stolen bases at all and so that's where you know, the one thing that you have to keep in mind is depending on how you build your team is, yeah, missing out. You know, you'll you'll find someone who's OK at first base, but it might be a very one dimensional player. That's what first base has historically been. I mean, you know, usually the, the high end guys are great hitters along with being great power hitters. But the, the cheaper guys at first base are generally going to be guys who are very, very home run heavy and may not help you anywhere else and so runs an RBI, obviously they'll be pretty helpful, but you, you get the point. I just want to interject with this real quick since this is, these are the position previews and they might be the only thing some people listen to. If I'm picking late in round one, 10th, let's say, I'm taking Rafael Devers. I know that goes against ADP, but that's how important it is for me to feel uh, fill third base. I'd hate for you know, the 13 and 14 pick picks round one and two of round two to be Machado endeavors after I took Freddie Freeman or Vladimir Guerrero in round one. It's like, shoot, do I go for 
Austin Riley here or whatever. I just take Devers and see what's available to me early in round two. And it may end up being one of Guerrero or Freeman, which would be fine. I mostly agree with that. I think I still trust the production a little bit more from Freeman, Scott versus Devers. Of course. No, I agree. But I, you know, I'm just, that's how committed I am to filling third base early. And I'm much more likely to take an outfielder if they slip to like a Jordan Alvarez or Mookie Betts or we did a mock draft last week and Kyle Tucker fell to pick 12 for me. Much like yeah, to that take makes sense. someone like yeah. that over a first baseman as well. Yeah, like I, yeah, Tucker and Austin Riley pairing that'd be fine. It's just that's that's how thin it feels like third base and outfield are to me. Is that like I I just can't justify taking a first like there isn't enough of a standout at first base that I get a, I would be willing to pass over those guys. Last point on the strategy discussion. We were talking beforehand and before the podcast started and. I feel like first base is a good position to attack in a salary cap draft. So you're not, you know, at the mercy of the snake draft where you kind of have to follow ADP and you have to know where players go. And obviously we're prioritizing third base and outfield and I'd like to get a top 10 catcher. You can't have everything, right? So at least in a salary cap draft, I don't usually spend for top players. So if I'm living in that mid tier, it's much more likely that I can get a Jose Abreu or Vinny Pasquantino or, or someone like that. So it just feels like maybe that will work out better in that and, and I think versus snake. That's draft. the result, I think, of there being one huge drop off at first base. You know, after the first, what is it, four or five, I guess? Yep. Uh, Matt Olson. Yeah, Olson's kind of a tweener. But even that, I mean, he's in ADP 16 picks behind Paul Goldschmidt and then 55 picks ahead of Jose Abreu. But after Abreu, it's like, one first baseman every 12 picks on average or, or even, even even fewer. So I think part of it is that if you want one of that five, I think there's going to be bidding wars for them. And whichever one of the la- of those five is the last one nominated, you know, you, you could very well see that person going for way more than they should. Right. But then after that, there, there's gradients. And so I think that's going to help in those salary cap leagues because – there's not going to be desperation. You know, there might be desperation for a Vinny Pasquantino just because he's so popular. But like, is the difference between Christian Walker and, and Anthony Rizzo something that someone's going to bid up $4 for? Probably not. Those guys are all going to go like 7 or $8, I would think. All right, let's jump into ADP, the four horsemen. We have four first base options going in the first two rounds of ADP. And it feels like these are the ones that have been most consistent the past couple of years as well. Freddie Freeman with an ADP of 11.5. Vladimir Guerrero Jr. going right around him. His ADP is 12. So if you play in a 12-team league, he's right on that you know round one-two turn. Pete Alonso, ADP of 17. And Paul Goldschmidt, oddly enough, who was the best of this bunch last year, has the lowest ADP, 22.5 as of now. We'll start with Freddie Freeman. Scott, incredibly consistent, has hit 295 or better in seven straight seasons. He has 113 or more runs scored in each of Freddie Freeman's last three full seasons. He's also incredibly durable. He's only missed 10 total games over the last five years. That is Freddie Freeman. Where do you land on the Freeman versus Vladimir Guerrero Jr. debate? Well, as I just kind of laid out, I'm probably not taking either. But if if we're doing a first base only draft, then I put Freddie Freeman just a little ahead of Vladimir Guerrero. Guerrero showed two years ago, of course, that he is in a different class upside wise. Uh, but Freddie Freeman, 
it was pretty amazing, actually. He was, at least according to the, the CBS rating system, he was the number two overall player in Roto Leagues last year, even though he hit 21 home runs. It was his fewest home runs for a full season since 2015, and he was still the number two overall player. And, of course, nobody's drafting him to be the number two overall player. Partly that's because he hit a career-high 325, or actually, well, if we count 2020, it's not a career high. But for a full season, career high 325. Um, and partly it's because he had a career high 13 steals. It was the second time we've seen him steal double-digit bases, and stealing's going to get a lot easier this year. So I, yeah, I'm cautiously penciling him in for double-digit steals again. Uh, and he's one of only a couple first basemen I could say that about. Um, so that helps, but... I, you know, I think looking at the track record, there's a good chance he hits 10 more home runs than he did last year. And, and then where will that put him in the uh, the rotisserie rankings? So I, I think we're by emphasizing Vladimir Guerrero's upside, we might be underselling Freddie Freeman's upside. It, I worry a little bit about the power. I think he's probably more of a mid-20s home run guy at this point. And Chris, something you brought up a lot last year, and I thought it was really interesting research, is that power hitters who have relied on going to the quote-unquote power alleys up the middle to like left center and right center, a lot of those players struggled with power last year in this new environment. The humidors, the the dead and balls, whatever you want to call it, these guys suffered power-wise. Freddie Freeman, Jose Abreu, Nick Castellanos, those are all guys that usually kind of live up the middle in terms of their power, and they all suffered. So there's a chance Freeman could get back on track, but I would just cautiously project probably mid-20s home runs at this point for him. Yeah, and and the other thing you have to keep in mind, uh, you know, I I think one more philosophically is just when we talk about Vladimir Guerrero being a higher upside player, we kind of mean he's a higher variance player. But their upsides are probably pretty similar. Yeah, Freddie Freeman's really, really good. Like, maybe he doesn't have the 2021 Vladimir Guerrero ceiling, although... I don't know how far off the best case scenario Federer Freeman season is, but I, I will also point out we haven't mentioned it yet, but he is 34 years old and he has aged incredibly gracefully. He is metronomic in terms of his uh, consistency, but it comes for everyone. The, the aging curve and some people have a, a very steep aging curve and some people have a very gradual one, but it's there for everyone. And, you know, I'm sure you could poke holes in Freddie Freeman's game and find some reason to believe that he's going to fall off. I don't really see it. You know, his barrel rate was lower last year than it had been in any season since 2018. That's about the only thing, but he's so good at everything. He's kind of a perfect hitter in a lot of ways, right? Like if you were designing a hitter to thrive in any era of major league baseball, like Freddie Freeman hits a ton of line drives, hits the ball really hard, has impeccable plate discipline. He doesn't really do anything wrong, but it could also be the case that this kind of broad skill set, you know, you can avoid falling off only so long. And then, you know, if there's a slight decline, the, the fall off could be more overstated. I don't know if that's not the right word. I'm not sure what word I'm looking for, but yeah, it's possible that like a small step back in the underlying skill set could hurt Freddie Freeman more than you would think, but I don't actually expect that. I have Vladimir Guerrero ranked a little bit higher, but it's 
basically a coin flip. I have Vlad ranked higher than Freddie Freeman, but after doing more research, I think I'm going to swap those two. It's incredibly close. I just think I trust Freddie Freeman a little bit more. Vlad Jr. went from 48 home runs and a 601 slugging percentage in that magical 2021 season to just 32 home runs. I say just, right? 32 home runs, still really good. And a 480 slug last year. Why? You could look at multiple reasons. His average launch angle went down. It was 9.4 in 21, 4.3 last year. His barrel rate went from 15% to 11% as a result of hitting more ground balls again. You know, the, the ground ball problem has been an issue, you know, in three of the four years. The one where it wasn't was when, you know, obviously he had that monster year in 2021. And you can also remember in 2021, the Blue Jays were playing in three different home ballparks. Uh, one of them was Salem Field. Vlad slugged 762 in 23 games there. 21 games in a place called TD Ballpark. He slugged 897 in those 21 games. Both of them were very hitter friendly too. So yeah. I don't want to well, put a cap on a you know 24-year-old, but it, it kind of feels like maybe he benefited from playing in those super friendly offensive environments. Well, what's, what's weird about that is Rogers center used to be seen as super hitter friendly, but, um, and I don't see this talked about a lot, but it, it installed a humidor a year before most teams that, that same year where they were split between three ballparks and, and Vladimir Guerrero put up these numbers. And it seemed to have, it seemed to really change the way that park played for the worse, as far as hitters go. And now they've changed their dimensions. So who knows? It's all up in the air again. In theory, it's going to, help balance things more for the hitters again. But um, there are some conflicting factors there with the walls both being moved in and also being made taller. One thing I will point out regarding that is I don't know how much to take from the minor league split, minor league park splits from 2021 because he also went from having a 925 OPS on the road in the first half of the season to an 835 on the road in the second half. So like, he also just wasn't as good on the road. And that was true everywhere he played. And they, they didn't play at Roger center until the second half of the season. So, or no, they didn't play at Roger center at all. Um, so, you know, that's no, two years I, ago they did. Play I think they eventually, eventually did. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Okay. That's what I was sure. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. They played about half their games, their home games at Roger center, a quarter at the other two spots. That's what I, yeah, that's what I thought. And so he was worse at Roger center than the two other quote unquote home parks, but he was also just worse in the second half of the season. Yeah. Um, look, I still think there, again, variance is what you want to call it. That's what Chris called it. I still think there's a lot of upside for Vlad Jr. So I don't want to sell that short, but if you're looking for just consistency and a little bit more safety, I think Freddie Freeman is probably the one for you. Uh, Pete Alonzo, if you want power, I mean, he is as consistent as they come. 146 home runs, 380 RBI since the start of 2019. Those are both the most in baseball during that span. So again, incredibly consistent, has cut down the strikeouts, which has helped the batting average. Uh, Scott, uh, I like the player in Pete Alonso, but the skill set is like mostly power in the second rounds of drafts. It's I'm probably not going to draft him much, and it has nothing to do with Pete Alonso. Yeah, I agree. Um, he, I, I think the most interesting thing I could say about Pete Alonso, and it involves another player, Matt Olson is that for the past several years, I've kind of said they're the same player, just one bats left-handed one bats right-handed. And I do feel like the separation has emerged between them that justifies Pete Alonso going earlier. Uh, basically it comes down to Pete Alonso's strikeout rate has kept getting better. 
And Matt Olson, after taking a big leap forward with that in 2021, took a big step back last year. And so now there's this gap in batting average that I'm not confident is going to go away. So Pete Alonso deserves to be mentioned more in the same breath now with Freeman and Vlad than with Olsen. But I agree at se- in, in round two, there are just bigger priorities for me. I mean, I'm probably for the, for the same position scarcity, scarcity reasons that I talk about reaching for Rafael Devers late in round one. I'm probably reaching for Nolan Arenado late in round two rather than accepting Pete Alonso. Let's move over to Paul Goldschmidt, who was amazing last year. 317 batting average, 35 homers, up over 100 of each runs and RBI, chipped in seven seals. He was the second overall player in Roto last year behind only Aaron Judge. He's going to regress, Chris. The question is, how much will Paul Goldschmidt regress? The expected batting average was 261. That's a little scary. His ex-slug was 582, nearly 100 points lower than his actual slugging percentage. 482. Uh, what did I say? 582. Yeah, so 482. point difference yeah. there. Yeah, that would be, I mean, if you slugged, you know, almost 700, that would be insane. Um, but, yeah, so there's disparity in the expected numbers, and Paul Goldschmidt's 35 years old, Chris, so how much do you think he regresses, and is he someone maybe you would shy away from because of those underlying numbers and, and the age and all that fun stuff? It feels dumb to bet against him because we've done it, like, three different times, and right. every time he seems to come up with some kind of trick to to overcome it. And it's just, it's one of those things where like, I don't know if Paul Goldschmidt is going to make it into the Hall of Fame. Paul Goldschmidt is a Hall of Fame caliber player. I don't know if his peak will have, end up having been long enough, but like these kinds of players tend to age really well. Freddie Freeman's another example of that. I think Freddie Freeman will get into the Hall of Fame. Um, but like these guys tend to one... I think outperform aging curves and also just they tend to outperform like expected stats, right? Like that's what makes these guys great is they're outliers. And so, yeah, Goldschmidt's going to have some regression, but it's not like overperforming expected stats is, you know, a rarity for this guy. So there's something in his skill set, his all fields hitting abilities, probably part of it. The fact that he's relatively athletic, although he certainly lost some of that. I, I don't think I've drafted him yet. And there's a decent chance I won't, but I definitely feel like I might regret that because the regression's already baked in. You know, like you said, he was the number two player last year. He's yeah. going. Yeah, I, I should mention. I think I said Freddie Freeman was the number two Roto player last year. Goldschmidt was actually two. Freeman was three. Yeah. So, like, it's, it's baked in, not entirely. You know, it's not like he's going 40th overall or whatever like he was last year, but you don't have to pay full freight for him to do what he did last year again. After the big four, we have one lonely option before we see a big drop-off in ADP. Matt Olson has an ADP of 38.5. Really no discount from last year. You know, the batting average did take a step back, but last year the ADP was 35. So basically, same spot here for Matt Olson. First year in Atlanta, he hit 240 with 34 home runs and 103 RBI. Scott, the batted ball metrics actually got better last year. Matt Olson hit the ball harder. The problem, as you mentioned, the strikeout rate went back up. And he had a terrible September where he hit 193, which actually dragged the batting average down from 250 to 240 at that point. So I would expect the 250 batting average with mid-30s home runs once again. Yeah, I do think 
I have a hard time drafting Matt Olson, and this kind of sums up what I talked about as my strategy at first base at the beginning. You look at Matt Olson's stats last year. You look at Christian Walker's stats last year. Identical, mm-hmm. to quote my cousin Vinny. Now, that was probably Christian Walker's best-case scenario. And while I don't think last year was Matt Olson's worst-case scenario, it was probably, you know his 40th percentile outcome or something like that, you know, maybe, maybe 50th percentile. Like he could definitely get a lot better and we've seen it be a lot better. So um, it, it's just, again, like unless I get Matt Olson at a real discount, like maybe starting in round five, if he's still there, I could think about taking him. Uh, they're, they're just bigger priorities for me in the rounds before that. And I, and I'm just willing to roll the dice on a Christian Walker, like first baseman later. The nice thing about Matt Olson now that he's in Atlanta is he's no longer a one category guy, which outside of 2021, that's kind of what he was. Like you look at even the good seasons in Oakland, it was like 29 to 35 homers run, run and RBI numbers, very pedestrian for the kind of power that you were getting now. I think he's a fairly safe bet for hundred RBI. If he has a normal season, whereas before it might've been 85 to 90 in that park and that offense. So, you know, he's a little bit more well-rounded, but like Matt Olson's the first guy here that you can genuinely say is a one trick pony. And it's a good trick. He hits a lot of home runs, but he's a much more limited offensive player than the rest of the other five, even Pete Alonzo. You know, I think like, one is just a better power hitter than Matt Olson, but also is a more well-rounded hitter. And the lineups are very similar, I think. So the the RBI disparity from last season probably won't sustain, but Alonzo's more contact-oriented profile probably makes him a better RBI guy as well. Unless that changes, because, I mean, sure. Matt, Matt Olson's 2021 season was the best strikeout season either of them have had, I'm pretty yes. sure, 16.8%. And he hit 271 that year, and we thought at the time, well, maybe he could hit better than 271. And he switched um, leagues, which yeah, is very difficult league, to do. New team, a lot of pressure, just signed a big contract after the Braves trade for them, was replacing a franchise icon in Freddie Freeman. There was a lot of pressure on Matt Olson last year, and, and so you could see how he might improve based on that. But again, as you pointed out when we started talking about Matt Olson, Frank, there's, you're, you're not really getting him at a discount. And um I yeah. feel like to justify it, you need to. Hey, Yeah, I thought he was being overdrafted last year. This year definitely feels like that. Fantasy drafters are sharp, man. So they see the underlying numbers. They see the lineup too, right? Pete Alonso had 131 RBI last year. That was tied for the league lead. I think the Braves lineup is one of, if not the best in baseball. If everything clicks for Matt Olson and he hits 40 homers, he can put up 120, 130 RBI with, with those. Pe- that is, that is where the strikeouts him. matter, though. Yep. You know, that's, that, that's it's not just with batting average like, you know, you don't get a ton of sacrifice flies every season. I think that's overrated, but just like you have more opportunities to drive in runs when you're not striking out. All right. After Matt Olson, we drop down 55 spots in ADP and we have three options between picks 90 and 100. So uh, this is a very, very uh, small range of picks here where these three are going. So you basically have to decide which one you like most. We have Jose Abreu at ADP 93, Nathaniel Lowe at ADP 98, and Vinny P. Baby. Vinny P. Baby. I wanted to get that in there because Scotty's always saying Vinny P, baby. Every time you say it, Scott, I think of Dick Vitale and Dick Vi- Dickie V, baby. That's, I always think of that. So 
we've got a new drop and we're going to be using it for Vinny P. Uh, anywho, Jose Abreu is now in Houston with the Astros. Uh, last year's power output seems like it was kind of fluky, unlucky for Jose Abreu. Nathaniel Lowe's coming off the breakout. And Vinny Pasquantino is everyone's favorite breakout. So, Scott, we'll start with you. If you have to choose one, are you going Vinny P, Jose Abreu, or Nate Lowe? Definitely not going Nate Lowe. Ah, even with my <laughs> Rangers hat on. Uh, so here's the thing. Like I've I've talked before when we were, we were talking about first base tiers, uh, and maybe I might go f- forward with this when I release tiers 2.0, um, because I can I feel pretty confident I'm not going to pay the price for Matt Olson, and because I want to build in opportunities to wait at first base, I might end up tiering both Jose Abreu and Vinny Pasquantino with Matt Olson even though ADP doesn't say I should do that. In theory, tiering players should be completely independent from ADP. And uh, I think they both have that kind of upside. I think Jose Abreu, you look at the the StatCast page, identical to 2021, where he hit twice as many home runs as last year. And, and I'm like, red sliders, you know, like really hits the ball hard. In, in, in terms of... Um, Met, ability metrics, like metrics that would measure pure ability, there's no decline in Abreu. I don't know why he hit half as many home runs last year, but it seems like a total fluke, and uh, I have a lot of confidence in him bouncing back even at his age. Of course, he's with the Astros now, so better supporting cast, too. But Vinny Pasquantino, I mean, I don't want to give up the whole Vinny Pasquantino thing now, because we got breakouts coming up. Uh, just do it now. There's no point in holding it on, you know? All right, fine. Vinny Pasquantino is, I didn't have the page pulled up, so <laughs> but basically he was, he was a monster each of the last two years in the minors, finally got called up last year in uh, June, late June, struggled a little bit at first, but then over his final, la, 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 pull it that was up. the only position he played. 40 games. Nice round number. He hit 362 with seven home runs and 996 OPS, 21 walks, versus 12 strikeouts in those 40 games. Like he is that rare combination of impacting the ball really hard and in like both high quantity and high quality contact that uh, points to a really high ceiling for him. So I know it's kind of about a roundabout way of answering your question, but I rank Jose Abreu ahead of Vinny Pasquantino, but I'm tempted to change that just because I am one of the few people in the world who ranks Jose Abreu ahead of Vinny Pasquantino, which means if I continue to rank Jose Abreu ahead of Vinny Pasquantino, I'm never getting Vinny Pasquantino. And I don't like that idea because <laughs> I love Vinny P, baby. Scott, I actually rank Jose Abreu ahead of Vinny P, baby, as oh, well. I'm the only one. Hey, look, you know, I'm, I will actually do it, though. If they're both on the board and I need a first baseman at that point, I will take Jose Abreu over him. Uh, I've long been a Jose Abreu stand, so I guess, you know, maybe that factors into I, it as well. I think but. You, you line them up next to each other. I think Abreu's a better bet for batting average, a better bet for RBI, just based on the skill set, the park, and the lineup. Uh, I think home runs should probably be a push, although Vinny P hits the ball hard and has a very fly ball and pull oriented swing. So I think he's someone who could, you know, sneak his way into like 36 homers. But I I do, you know, I think the lineup and park context are enough to like, if you think it's a tie, I think it's enough to give a Bray you an edge because like 
Pasquantino, the, the comp that I've been going with is like a young uh, Anthony Rizzo, except a much, much worse athlete. Anthony Rizzo was actually a very good athlete for the first base position. Vinny Pasquantino is, I mean, he's 25 years old and he's probably already like a 10th percentile athlete in terms of major league baseball. Just he's massive. Like it's just really hard to be as big as this dude is and be a plus athlete at first base. And so that does make him even with the shift ban or the shift limitations coming up, it's going to make him easier to defend. You know, he's not going to beat out any infield singles. He's going to hit the ball on the ground to the right side of the infield. And even if there are limitations on how you can play that, I think it's going to make him easier to defend. Whereas Jose Abreu, it's been a very good source of batting average for a long time. His expected average last year, still very good. So I do think I have Pasquantino ahead, but I can definitely see the case for for Jose Abreu ahead of him. And I, and I really like Abreu in Houston. I think that's going to go really, really well. I think he's a – I don't know if they do futures bets for RBI leaders, but if they do, I think he's a very good choice at what will probably be pretty long odds. Yeah, I, if you just look at the expected home runs last year by ballpark, if Jose Abreu played all of his games in Houston last year, he would have had 22 home runs versus the 15 that he had last year. So he's not someone that pulls the ball all that much, but that short porch, the Crawford boxes in left field in Houston, that's definitely going to benefit Jose Abreu. I want to quickly talk about Nathaniel Lowe because we have not mentioned him at all. I do agree that I would take both Abreu and Vinny Pasquantino ahead of Nate Lowe, but... It feels like some people are kind of discounting the breakout that we saw from Nate Lowe last year, and he completely changed his approach, too. So I just want to highlight some of the things he did. He lowered his ground ball rate from 54% to 48%. He raised the launch angle. He was much more aggressive. His swing percentage went from 45% to 52%, and you saw that in his walk rate as well. So he was openly swinging the bat more, and it worked out for him. He crushed left-handed pitching, something that he's continuously uh, he's always done basically in his career and from june on he was amazing 317 batting average 24 homers 914 ops Mm -hmm. that was tied for seventh best among qualified hitters so i don't think he's going to be that player again i think he probably takes a little bit of a step back but you know 280 with 25 home runs that's probably not far off than what we're expecting from these other two. At least for me, that's what I think Nathaniel Lowe could do again. I think the batting average is where I could see Nathaniel Lowe. You know, he was a like 236 expected average guy the previous season. I, I don't think he's going to hit 240, but I could see him being closer to 260. And, yeah. you know, with not great over the fence pop, even in a very good season last year, and then the the run in RBI numbers especially that like those so should weird. be better but yeah yeah I don't know what to make of that yeah because Adolis Garcia like I've talked about how he he seemed like he got too many runs in mm-hmm. RBI for his numbers and then Nate Lowe he had seventy six RBI seventy four runs despite playing one hundred fifty seven games so I, I I guess I guess Adolis Garcia just took them all away I from mean them. not that many extra base hits for Nathaniel Lowe you know twenty seven home runs that's a decent amount but only 26 doubles. So, you know, 56 extra base hits is a decent number, but it's not a massive number in a, you know, a lineup that wasn't great last season. So I I can see the explanation for it. And to further your batting average point. So the top four among qualifying hitters last year in BABIP were Paul Goldschmidt, Nate Lowe, Xander Bogarts, Freddie Freeman. 
one of these names is not like yeah. the others. Like the rest are like established, consistent batting average standouts. And then there's Nate Lowe, who, uh, you know, we usually expect a 363 Babbitt to regress. Mm. You know what? I was there since day one with Nate Lowe, and I'm not quitting now, <laughs> so I'm sticking with him. Uh, about a round later, we have three more first basemen going between picks 115 and 120. So again, really small range. If you want a first baseman at this point, you got to decide between these three, and it's CJ Crone with a, an ADP of 115.5, Reese Hoskins at 116.5, and Christian Walker at 119. Uh, CJ Crone, solid again last year, 257 batting average, 29 home runs. He did fall off quite a bit here in the second half, 197 batting average, 604 OPS. I looked into it, it seems like it was mostly unlucky. Uh, so I'm, you know, I don't know that I make too much of that. Uh, age 33 season here for CJ Crone. Reese Hoskins has been incredibly consistent, you know, lower batting average, but, you know, you're probably going to get around 30 home runs. And Christian Walker, guys, I mean, He's probably one of the hardest players for me to rank because he did a lot of really, really good things last year. Cut the strikeout rate. Uh, he hit a lot of fly balls. He hit the ball hard. He got even better in the second half. But it's a lack of track record. How much do you trust it when it comes to Christian Walker? So, Chris, we'll start with you. Between these three, Crone, uh, Hoskins, Walker, which one do you prefer the most? I have Hoskins ranked highest, but they're separated by five spots total. So it, it's really... Very close altogether. Hoskins, I feel like he might be the most boring of the three. You know, he he's someone who, when he came up, we thought he was going to be like a, a 40 homer guy. And then the, the quality of contact metrics for him are, are kind of just okay. But he's a very solid 30-ish homer guy who probably doesn't have a lot of ceiling for batting average. So if you want to talk yourself into Christian Walker having more upside, I think he's probably the highest upside pick of this three. Scott, same question for you. Crone, Hoskins, uh, Christian Walker. Actually, I'm going to ask you to rank those three. Now, which one do you like the most? Walker, Hoskins, Crone. How do you rank them? Uh, Hoskins, Walker, Crone. Same. And it's, you know, the difference there between Hoskins and, and Walker is just my faith in them. I think... If even if Walker's good, his production will be about the same as what you can expect from Hoskins. I do think there's a case to be made that even as a right-handed hitter, and I saw MLB.com was making this case too. Christian Walker could stand to benefit from the the shift ban. There's a 15 point gap in expected batting average versus actual batting average, and he was pretty for a right-handed hitter. He got shifted on a lot, and was pretty bad against it. So um, part of the problem for him, though, he's got the worst park home park by a mile of this three. And and you know that 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 case I made for his batting average improvement, it, it's like such a small little detail. Like it's just, is Christian Walker really as good as he showed last year? That's that's obviously the much bigger question. Uh, and uh, I, I think find I draft him a lot. I find I draft him a lot because this is the range of first base where I want to draft from, and just a lot of people don't seem to have faith in him. Like. You know, for as much as I was just bad mouthing Nate Lowe, I'd rather draft Nate Lowe at his price than Pete Alonso at his price. So, th- like, this is the range I'm looking at, and uh, you're you're looking at players with bigger question marks in this range, including Walker. But it's it's the hope that what he did last year was closer to legitimate than not. Really, in the case of both of those players, and every year there's a few players like this that break out and we just don't know whether to believe it or not and it, it obviously could go one of two ways I mean Christian Walker could back it up last year he was the 50th overall player in Roto again the ADP is 119 if he does that 
he's a huge steal at this cost. Or he can kind of revert back to the player we saw the, the previous years uh, before last season. But so. that's kind of where I think Christian Walker's been a little under re- underrated. For you know the last four seasons, you look at it, and he was bad in 2021. He was awful. 697 OPS, no explaining that. That was terrible. But 792 OPS in 2020, that's not great. But he actually was among the league leaders in doubles that season. He just only had seven home runs, but his quality of contract met- contact metrics were still quite good. And then 2019, he had 29 home runs. His overall production wasn't great, but you know, 824 OPS that season. He played 152 games. Doesn't really have platoon issues. Like, I think Christian Walker is miscast as a a one year wonder. I guess is the way I would put it. And it's basically 2019 to 2022. Yeah, right, right. Twenty twenty. Twenty twenty. He was good. <laughs> it was just I think there was some bad home run variance. Is the way I would put it. He only had seven home runs, but he had eighteen doubles, and that was the sixty game season. Yeah, that was the sixty so. game season. So you're talking about a fifty something game sample size for him there. Um, I guess I'm arguing Christian Walker is better than you think he is. That could be true. And I don't think he's a one-year wonder. I just think there's a lack of a track record compared to someone like Reese Hoskins. Now, the more I think about it, CJ Crone and Christian Walker have probably had the, had the same number of relevant fantasy seasons, you know, probably two, yeah, maybe. Just distributed slightly differently. Yeah. For, for CJ Crone. So they're not really, you know, dissimilar, I guess in that way. Um, but Walker could pay off in a huge way if you do trust what we saw last season. Uh, Let's take a break. Before we do that, reminder that you can join our Fantasy Baseball Today Facebook group. That's facebook.com slash groups slash Fantasy Baseball Today. The link is in the podcast and the YouTube description. If you have a question, uh, we've got some mailbags coming up that you know we'll try and answer as many as possible, but of course, we won't always get to all of your questions. You can ask it on that Facebook group, and there's a lot of people interacting with keeper questions, draft questions, dynasty questions. Whatever you got, you can throw it in there on the Facebook group, and someone will reply and have a nice little conversation. So again, join up there, uh, but let's take a break, and we'll be back right after this. All right, let's do first base, sleepers, breakouts, and bust. We talked about a lot of these names already, so let's not go too far in depth if we already talked about said players. But let's start with sleepers. Scotty, who do you have? You are muted, sir. Ah, You pulled the Chris Uh, Towers. I was expecting to automatically unmute me coming out of the commercial, but that's fine. Uh, I like like all three of our sleepers, first of all. I'm just going to claim all three of them. But to, for, for the sake of being different, I'm going to say Miguel Vargas is my personal sleeper. Um, he's one of my favorite sleepers this year. He's one of the reasons why I feel like I can afford to roll the dice, even in that range of first baseman we were just talking about, the Christian Walker, CJ Crone group. Because even if I miss out of them, I can fall back on Miguel Vargas, a very consistent 300 hitter in the minors. Great plate discipline down there, similar to Vinny Pasquantino. And can actually run a little bit. He's very fast and, and you could see yeah, with 94th stolen, percentile sprint speed, you could see with the, the um, stolen base league making rule changes to open up base stealing. You could see him making a, a, a decent contribution in that category as well. And then the most exciting part of all is it sounds like he's going to be prime playing primarily second base for the Dodgers arguably the thinnest position in fantasy. So he won't have eligibility there to begin the year. It's just going to be first base. That'll pick up second base soon. He was primarily a third baseman in the minors, and as much as the Dodgers like to move people around, maybe he'll pick up third base eligibility. He might even pick up outfield eligibility before all said and done. Uh, so 
Very excited about him. The most questionable part of his skill set is home run power. Maybe he's just a 20 homer guy in his prime. But I mean, he's 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 such a he has such a good hitting foundation and is so athletic that it wouldn't surprise me if he was more like a 30 homer guy in his prime. Um, and you know, I think I'll make an impact right away, clearly. A really intriguing skill set for Miguel Vargas. I think as soon as this season he can hit 270 plus. 15 to 18 homers, double-digit steals, and that's not a player that blows you away, but it's definitely someone that's going to be a contributor and, and a viable fantasy That's a conservative option. estimate, too, to be clear. Like, that's it's, that's it's, the playing it safe, I'm, I'm Mr. Projections kind of projection. It's it's also a rookie projections guy, so I don't want to no, over-project, right? No, I mean, right? like, look, he could be rookie of the year this year. Come on. He could, he could. Uh, Chris, sounds like you have a, a rookie sleeper as well. Yeah, I, I love the the prospect who gets called up at the end of the season and struggles because their value is going to tank. And like if Tristan Casas had never made 27 appearances at the major league level last season, but was penciled in as the starting first baseman for the Red Sox going into the season, coming off an 889 OPS as a 22-year-old consensus top 30 prospect, he would definitely be going higher than like 238.25 or whatever his actual ADP is right now. So I, I just think this is an awesome opportunity to buy a very, very good prospect who, as far as I'm concerned, doesn't really have any playing time concerns. He wasn't great in his cup of coffee last season, but. Well, here, here's, here's, here's something, a couple things real quick. He hit 197. Mm-hmm. So yes, I think the average person will look at that and say, hey, Tristan Casas, I'm not sure he's ready for this. Despite hitting 197, he reached base at a 358 clip. He had a 20% walk rate, yeah. And he homered five times in mm-hmm. 76 at-bats, less than 100 plate appearances. And I, I think a couple of them, at least a couple of them, were opposite field shots. Yep. Um, good yeah, the quality of contact metrics weren't great, but you know, you'll still, all the scouting reports still suggest there should be plus brawl power here too. The ADP yeah. for Tristan Casas right now, according to Fantasy Pros, is, I just saw it, 227.5. For Miguel Vargas, it was 290.5, but Vargas is on the rise after that recent report that he could be the opening day uh, starting second baseman. And Chris, and, I... And, 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 and both of these guys, Casas and Vargas, I would be okay if I drafted them to start for me at first base, a position where I feel like there are going to be a decent number of players emerging midseason if it doesn't work out. Like these are kind of my ultra fallback options at the position. I could see it in a shallower league, Scott, because you'll have higher replacement value. But if I'm playing in one of these deeper 15 team leagues, I probably want them as more as corner infielders, personally, for me. Uh, Tristan Costas, I have as a breakout, so I'll just kind of add on to some of the things that you said, Chris. Five home runs in the 27 games played. Three of them went to the opposite field. Scott mentioned that. One of them went off Garrett Cole to the opposite field over the Green Monster. So I love the all-field power approach for Tristan Casas. And I know we get in trouble with these small sample size type things, but final 13 games, he was already making adjustments. 316 batting average, lowered the strikeout rate during that time. The Red Sox clearly have uh, clearly believe in him as well because they cut Eric Hosmer. Uh, Tristan Casas full runway to be the starting first baseman this season. My sleeper at first base, more so undervalued than anything, is Rowdy Telez. He has an ADP of 172.5, so not going as late as some of these other options you guys have mentioned. One of 10 players to hit 35 or more home runs last year, and I kind of feel like in this environment we need as much power as we could possibly get. Last year, Rowdy hit only 219, 
but his expected batting average was 252. And of course, we do have those shift restrictions coming in. Uh, made a clear change in his approach, launch angle change, career high 45% fly ball rate, a near 13% barrel rate for Rowdy Telez. That was fourth best among qualified first basemen. So probably a 240, 250-ish batting average, but I think we could get 30-plus home run power once again from uh, Rowdy Telez. And a shout-out to Matt Mervis. We'll talk about him in just a little bit as well. I, I still do like Matt Mervis. He is a prospect with the Chicago Cubs. Breakout for both of you guys, someone we already talked about. Do we need to say much more? Vinny P, baby. baby. Probably the most popular breakout pick of all, but I want to make sure I plant my flag in that too. Yeah, yeah I, I only assume that Frank didn't include him as his breakout to be different. Just didn't <laughs> mention a different name. Uh, I didn't write about Vinny P in my uh, breakouts, and I actually wrote about Tristan Casas, so wanted to remain consistent, but yes, I, I think there's a very real chance that uh, Vinny Pasquantino breaks out over a full season. He's awesome. He hits the ball hard. Uh, elite plate discipline. The only thing that could, I could see holding him back is the ballpark and the lineup around mm-hmm. Vinny Pasquantino. Outside of that, I, I have pretty much uh, complete faith in, in Vinny P. Baby! Bust this year. Uh, Chris, we'll start with you. Who do you have? Nate Lowe. And, oh, you know, I think gosh. we pretty much covered that one already. I don't think we need to uh, beat Frank's soul any harder. I just... My heart. I don't... <sighs> I don't know, like he, he was one of those guys who took like small steps forward across the board and that can often lead to big changes. But it's it's also the kind of thing where it's like, well, if all that was preventing him from being going from a fantasy afterthought to, you know, a very good player was like a what two percent drop in strikeout rate and a four percent rise in ground or fly ball rate. And it, it, it all kind of points to like, man, if there's even a slight amount of regression in the skill set, I think things could come crashing back down. So. I don't dislike the player. I can certainly see the case for him. The fact that he's a lefty who hits lefties really well, I think is a plus in his favor. And I think, you know, that that could end up, you know, helping him beat expectations. But yeah, I just, I don't love the price more than anything. Yeah, I I get it. Cause he's, again, he's going around past Quantino and Jose Abreu. I don't really love the price either. He'd have to fall a little bit for me to actually draft him, which happened last week in our mock draft. But I'm just, I have a little bit more faith in the changes sure. that he made last year. Uh, Scott, a bust for you. So I, I didn't have one already picked out in my bust column, but whenever I'm forced to draft CJ Crone from that range I like to draft in, I just hate it. I, you know, I, I throw a little hissy fit because it's not what I want to do. Like I think I should have just drafted, wait a little longer, drafted Rowdy Telez. Uh, CJ Crone has some of the worst home away splits, not surprisingly, because he plays at Coors Field, but also some of the worst first second half splits. So he hit at home, on the road, he hit 214 with a 619 OPS last year, which means you probably shouldn't be starting him on the road. And what good is a first baseman? You can only start half the time. And then in the second half, he was even worse. 197 with a 604 OPS. I don't imagine that he's done. Like, I, I don't think that was the beginning of the end for CJ Chrome, but it's just something else to worry about. And because I mean, of that home away issue, it's just like, uh, it, I just don't feel right about having him as my first baseman. Think about the pre course field version of CJ Crone and how like hit or miss he was. He had the one really good season with the Rays, but other than that, it was like, 
man, this guy could be good, but, and so, yeah, it's entirely possible that like when the end comes for this kind of player, it can come really, really quickly. And he had drastic changes in his plate discipline too. The strikeout rate went from 21% in 2021 to 26% last year. The walk rate dipped from 11% to 6.8%. So two things that are going in drastically different directions there. You talked about the split, Scott. I agree with you. I actually have CJ Crone as my bust uh, for first base as well. We do have a bunch of other names to get to. Uh, oh, a few other things I wanted to mention. First baseman, you will target most. All things considered, just give me a name. The, the one that you want most at the position is blank. Scott? I mean, it's it's Vinny P. I know you don't want you want just one name here. Realistically, I'm probably going to have Christian Walker or Rowdy Telez as my first baseman most often. Chris, it's Christian Walker probably just relative to his value. I I, I like him a lot. Yeah, it's probably Anthony Rizzo or Rowdy Telez for me. We'll get to Rizzo in just a bit. Oh yeah, that's a good one, Scott. I know you wanted to mention uh, prospects moving forward on these uh, podcasts. So just we already talked about Tristan Casas. Miguel Vargas has first base eligibility on CBS. Matt Mervis is a Cubs prospect who last year had ridiculous numbers, up over 30 home runs, great batting average. I saw him out at the Arizona Fall League. First game I saw, he destroyed a home run. Then I saw him play in the Fall Stars game. He hit an opposite field home run. I mean, the guy looks like he's absolutely ready. The problem, the Cubs signed Eric Hosmer and uh, Trey Mancini. So we probably have to wait a little bit for Matt Mervis. Yeah, I mean, Mancini can play outfield. Obviously, there's the DH spot. I'm not totally ruling out Mervis making the opening day roster still. He played, he dominated at AAA just like everywhere. Like he got better at every level, or at least the strikeout rate did. Chris makes the Anthony Rizzo comparison with Vinny Pasquantino. I like to apply it to Matt Mervis for the combination of power and contact skills that he shows. And I, I think internally, the Cubs have made that. Um, comparison as well. So exciting prospect, but a step behind Casas and Vargas since we don't know exactly when he'll be up. And then a step behind Matt Mervis is Kyle Manzardo of the Tampa Bay Rays, who last year in the minors hit 327 with 22 homers and a 1043 OPS between high A and double A. If you're looking for someone who can have a Pasquantino impact in the second half of this year, I think it could be Kyle Manzardo with the Tampa Bay Rays. Let's get into the rest of ADP. Oh my gosh, there's so many names to talk about. This is a uh, kind of a disaster. Anyway, five options going between picks 140 and 165. We have Anthony Rizzo at pick 143, Andrew Vaughn at 144.5, Jose Miranda at 150, Ryan Mountcastle at 161, and Ty France at 165. Chris, I legitimately only find myself targeting one name in this group, and that is Anthony Rizzo, and I swear it has nothing to do with me being a Yankees fan. It's just, I like what he did last year. He kind of sold out for the short porch and the power. I'm expecting a lower batting average, but as long as he's relatively healthy, I I think he can push or even exceed 30 home runs once again. Meh. Okay. I I think he could hit 30 home runs again. That's kind of all I expect from him. And I I think he's... A lot of the knocks against him that we had with Crone regarding the, you know, being dependent on his home park, I think are there for Rizzo. He certainly stole a few home runs with uh, Yankee Stadium. There was one specifically where I distinctly remember him. He's like walking back to the dugout. (laughs) And then you kind of see him go, did that go out? And then start laughing. So like, I, I think he's like the just a one trick pony. And if it ends up being like 26 home runs instead of 32, which it very well could, 
I don't think he's going to do enough else to to justify being a starter. I think the batting average could be a little bit better, too. I know the expected yeah. batting average was higher, and, and we got the shift restrictions coming in. He hit a lot of fly balls, so that leads to a yeah. low BABIP and a low batting average, but... Like, that's the thing. I think he changed his approach for Yankee Stadium, and I think he might change it a little back because of the shift. Like, he still makes a ton of contact. Yes. And, you know, earlier in his career, like, we keep making all these comparisons to Anthony Rizzo because earlier in his career he was a stud who hit for power and average. Um, Not like Freddie Freeman average, but, you know, 270 to 290. And... I'm not saying he can get back to that, but of this group, he feels like the one that I'm tiering with the previous group. Like I'm all, I'm almost as okay with Anthony Rizzo as my first baseman as I am Christian Walker, especially in a head to head points league 3.2 fantasy points per game for Rizzo last year. That was sixth best among first basemen. So better than Olsen. Yeah. That plate discipline is really, really good for those who play in that format. Uh, Scott, Andrew Vaughn and Jose Miranda feel very similar at this point. They're young players. I think they both possess upside. I'm not sure that we tap into it yet. I think they probably, you know, gradually get a little bit better this year, but they both kind of hit too many ground balls that limits the power. I just kind of feel like they're okay. You know, 260 and maybe yeah, like 15 I'm, to 20 I homers. I think I'm out on the idea that Miranda has like high-end upside. I just, he makes contact at a pretty good rate. His exit velocity, hard hit rate, you know, middle of the road. I, I think like especially since he was such a, 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 a breakout player in the minors, like where did this guy come from putting up these monster numbers? Um I think last year was kind of the back to reality for him. I, I understand it was his rookie season and there's always a chance he can get better, but he's not especially young. And I just think this is kind of who he is and it's fine, but it's it's more corner infield material than a uh, mm-hmm. potential starter at first base, though he is also eligible at third base, right? Which helps yes, quite a bit. Vaughn, I, I kind of feel the same way about Vaughn because nothing in the underlying numbers looks that impressive, but I just give him a little more benefit of the doubt because the White Sox have been so weird about his positioning, you know, playing out of place in the outfield where he wasn't very good. And because he's a former like number three overall pick, right? So he has this pedigree that uh, I still pay respect to after a couple years in the majors already. I, I will say in, in regards to Vaughn versus Miranda in particular, I think Vaughn has shown a stronger skill set just in terms of the quality of contact of, uh, of contact, if nothing else, uh, what an 82nd percentile average exit velocity, 90th percentile hard hit rate makes a lot of contact. I think he's, you know, this might be a case where he's probably too aggressive at the plate and ends up swinging at pitches that he shouldn't. But, you know, he's one of those guys who like, if he just starts hitting the ball in the air a little more without sacrificing the quality of contact, I think he could take a big step forward. I don't feel the same way about Miranda, whose quality of contact metrics are much more middling, you know, 50th percentile-ish. Yeah. Yeah, pulling up Vaughn's page now, I didn't realize his, you know, 82nd percentile average exit velocity, 82nd percentile max exit velocity. That was actually better than I was thinking, so I was not giving him enough credit, probably. And Vaughn posted a 115 max EV as a rookie in 2021, and if you see a number like that as a rookie, that means you probably have a future as like a 25 home run hitter at the least. So mm-hmm. uh, I think there's a chance he can, if everything works out for Vaughn this year, finally playing first base, he could hit 
you know, 275 with 25-ish home runs. That that could be the upside case for Andrew Vaughn. Ryan Mountcastle, I, I feel so bad for the guy. He hits the ball so hard. 91.3 average exit velocity, 15% barrel rate. Are you kidding me? 94th percentile. But these changes to the dimensions in Camden Yards mm-hmm. just absolutely crushed him. His expected home runs were 27.6, yet he only hit 22. And Chris, those dimensions aren't changing back. So I, I kind of feel like this is where we're at with Ryan Mountcastle. Yeah, this was one that like, it feels like we called it last spring. Remember, if you were listening, I think he was a bust for all of us. None of us really liked him. And then he took this big, like <coughs> legitimately huge step forward as a player in terms of like the quality of contact he was making, especially expected Wobon contact jumped from 422, which is pretty good to 463, which is borderline elite. And yet, because the Orioles turned Camden Yards into a gimmicky park, all of a sudden Ryan Mountcastle's breakout is buried, and it's very likely that it won't. We won't see the fruits of that until and unless he changes teams. Uh, last thing I wanted to mention on Ty France, he was the other player in this uh, group here. I think he's been pretty consistent the past two years. Batting average between 274 and 291, home runs between 18 and 20. I know he uh, fell off late in the season last year, second half, but he was dealing with an elbow injury in June. Mm-hmm. And, and basically after that, that's where the numbers really started to fall off. So I think he could bounce back a little bit more this year. I don't think he's like a high upside play, but I think he's solid, probably more I'm, so as a corner infielder. I'm going to end up with Ty, Ty France on a lot of teams, I feel like, because he's just like, I think he's a really solid source of batting average, if nothing else. He is, and and it's hard to get at the range where he's going, but right. you, he, I do think you're going to um, be at a disadvantage power-wise if Ty France is your first baseman. Yeah. Uh, and, and it's worth pointing out he's no longer eligible at second base. Like I think he's, he had been. Yep, from the beginning. I thought he had multi-eligibility. Does he not anymore? Not anymore. Only not on CBS. Base. Maybe if you play with a bunch of yahoos, <laughs> he does. I can't I can't speak for that, but not on CBS. Five players going between picks 170 and 190, but we will save Brandon Drury for the third base preview and Jake Cronenworth for second base. Josh Bell at 172.5, Rowdy Telez also at 172.5, and then Joey Manessis at 178, who has first base and outfield eligibility. Scott Josh Bell signed a two-year deal with the Guardians this offseason. They are 14th in home run park factor, so feels okay in terms of the ballpark last year. Completely fell off with San Diego late in the season, but that was because a huge rise in ground ball rate, 57% once he joined the Padres. So that's always yeah. been the issue with Josh Bell. I mean, if he can you know, just maintain a, a sub-50% ground ball rate, I think we're probably back to, you know, 20 home runs with with a pretty solid batting average. Yeah, I mean, he hit 27 home runs in 2021. He had 14 and 103 games with the Nationals, also hit 301 with an 877 OPS. So he was having like he was looking like a stud more or less before that trade to San Diego, which as you point out just tanked his numbers. A lot of it had to do with the ground ball rate, and yes, we have seen that from him in the past. There, there have been these frustrating spurts from Josh Bell mm-hmm. where he shows huge upside, makes high-quality contact, has incredible plate discipline. That plate discipline, by the way, like we were saying for Anthony Rizzo, elevates his value quite a bit in points leagues so that he doesn't necessarily need to be a 20-homer guy to be a worthy starter there. But 
I think he's probably going to be a 20 homer guy. And I think from this group, Josh Bell and Rowdy Telez, who we've of course already talked about, I, I look at them and I wonder why they're this low. Cause I'll, I'll take both over Ty France. I'll take both over Ryan Mountcastle, Jose Miranda. Uh, I'll take both over Andrew Vaughn. And so I, I guess that's even more reason why I could potentially wait at first base. It's, you know, it's a little harder Josh Bell because, you know, he's let us down so many times, but I do feel like the upside's there and the way it isn't for some of those other players. Yeah, I agree. Uh, I think Josh Bell is undervalued going this late in drafts. Chris, I mentioned the name Joey Manessis, the ADP again, 178, a 30-year-old journeyman who kind of broke out late in the season with the Nationals. He hit 324 with 13 home runs and a 930 OPS in 56 games with the team. Lots of line drives, hit the ball hard, but... We have no track record to go on. What do you think of this price tag right around 180? I generally think anytime you're talking about a 30-year-old who's got a 56-game sample size to go on, you should probably be very skeptical. But the price isn't so bad that it's, you know, that I'm running and screaming from him. You know, the underlying metrics are fine. They're pretty good. You know, 91.4 mile per hour average exit velocity, decent strikeout rate. So I... There are worst bets you can make. You know, there are worst picks you can make outside of the top 200 if that's where he falls. I wouldn't reach for him by any means, but like there it's, there may come a point where I I just shrug and take him as a corner infielder. It's just when you see Tristan Casas and Miguel Vargas <laughs> yeah. going after him, it's like, how can I justify yeah. the Manessas price tag? But I do think that's probably going to change as we approach opening day. I would They're think going so, to be yeah. the hype guys, and, and Manessas will slide even more. You know, it's a little sim- it's it's kind of similar to Frank Schwindel a year ago, who had that crazy finish with the Cubs in 2021, and then was you know obviously uh, busted in fantasy last year, but was also going pretty late. The underlying numbers look much better for Manessas. The minor league track record doesn't. That's kind of the weird thing, too. Like, he wasn't yeah. a very good performer in the minors. But, then, you know, the data backs up what he did in the majors, more or less. So He's I, I don't 30. Know. You know, yeah. like, that. the thing I struggle with is, like, he kind of reminds, gives me, like, a Jesus Aguilar 2017 vibe. Except Jesus Aguilar was three full years younger. And so that's that's where, like, if you want to be optimistic, there are some reasons to be so, but... It's just this is not a a profile that tends to be real. And normally you don't want your players playing for the Washington Nationals, but at least in this case, you know they're going to give him some leash. They're going to see what yeah. he could do. So uh, if nothing else, he'll he'll have playing time. That is Joey Manessis with the Nationals. Three going from picks two ten to two forty. Seth Brown at two ten point five. Tristan Casas we talked about at two twenty seven point five, and Josh Naylor down at two thirty six point five. Uh, Scott, surprisingly, Seth Brown and Josh Naylor were both top one hundred and fifty players in Roto last season. Seth Brown, 25 homers and 11 steals. Josh Naylor hit 256, 20 homers, 79 RBI for him. So they are not sexy by any means. But if you're talking about a deeper league corner infielder, I, I kind of get it. I, they're they're going to play for their respective teams. Seth Brown and Josh Naylor. They're going to play against righties. True. I do feel confident saying that. Um, Josh Naylor, they, they, were, they were playing games with his playing time a lot of last year and it was frustrating because there were stretches last year where he looked like he could be emerging as this must start bat and i don't know i just 
I think they're probably being drafted appropriately. I don't have a ton of confidence in either being impact players, Seth Brown or Josh Naylor. If, if I, I feel like Naylor probably has more upside of the two and Seth Brown could just be, he, he could be Frank Schwindel in that he just goes away and we never hear from him again. Less likely for Naylor, but I'm not excited about either. I do like for Naylor, at least he does make a lot of contact and he, Hits the ball decently hard, 113.4 max EV last year. So he does have the ability to hit for pop, but lots of ground balls as, as well. So uh, I think he's fine. That is Josh Naylor. Lots of multi-position eligible guys from 260 through picks 300. Uh, Trey Mancini, DJ LeMahieu, Yandy Diaz, Miguel Vargas, who will gain second base eligibility likely early on in the season. Uh, and then Will Myers, who signed on with the Reds. Chris, are there any names here? Myers, Vargas, Yandy Diaz, DJ LeMahieu, Trey Mancini, that you have any interest in? I have a decent amount of interest in Will Myers. I'm, I'm with you on him being a sleeper pick. Um, terrible last season, but he was good in 2020, so he's. I don't think he's necessarily finished yet. And obviously, the Great American Small Park can be very good for him. And then uh, DJ LeMahieu, I, I think you can just point to the toe. And, and say that's the reason he struggled. And he's never going to be the 2020 version of himself again. He probably won't ever be the 2021 version of himself again. But it should be a very good source of batting average, should be a decent source of runs and RBI in that lineup. And, you know, probably not a good source of power, but a non-zero in that ballpark. So I, I do think DJ LeMahieu, I'm going to have him on a, a lot of teams this season. You could maybe blame last year on the toe for DJ LeMahieu, but have, what do you blame 2021 for? Because he was even worse. He had a bad you know. season. <laughs> I'm pretty sure he was banged up in 2021 as well. Well, it, he's in his mid-30s, and you know now they have they have a full infield without him. And if they call up Anthony, well, shoot. I mean, even without, even if you're even if you're not including the the up and comers, um, uh, Oswald Peraza and Anthony Volpe, let's say they're off the roster all season long, the Yankees have a full health infield without DJ LeMahieu. And realistically, those guys are going to be up. I mean, Peraza could be up from opening day. So I just, I, I'm not saying he's going to be a bench player, but is he going to be a full time player? And I kind of feel like he has to be. He has to play literally. His profile is such that he has to play literally every day to be a real fantasy asset. So I'm, I'm out on DJ LeMahieu. I get it. I feel like we had the same concerns when he first signed with the Yankees. We didn't know where he was going to play, but Josh Donaldson looks like he's completely done. Um, and they could just kind of bounce LeMahieu around. They could play him at second. They could DH Glaber. They could play him at first. They could DH Rizzo or whatever they want to do. Um, but I will point out, through July last year, before he suffered that toe injury, he was batting 285 with 11 homers, 65 runs scored, and more walks and strikeouts. So I kind of agree, Chris. I think there's still a player there, but is he healthy? Life, that, that's the question. Life finds healthy? a way. If, if DJ LeMahieu doesn't hit, then it doesn't matter. Right. If DJ LeMahieu hits you know, as a, as a low 800s OPS bat, then I, I think they'll find a way to get him in the lineup. Three names to know from picks 300 to 400, so we're talking very deep leagues at this point. Spencer Torkelson, former top prospect with the Tigers. Feels like we're just kind of giving up on him too soon. He returned in September last year, and he hit the ball extremely hard during that time. It didn't really amount to much production, but just thought that was kind of interesting. Jared Walsh is returning for the Angels from Thoracic Outlet, and Alex Kirilov, guess what? 
Yeah. Already dealing with wrist soreness. Presumably not what Scott was celebrating. (laughs) I don't think so. I didn't see that. Yeah. That's what I read. So. Doesn't yeah, he, had, he had that surgery to shave down the bone to finally get rid of that wrist uh, injury once and for all. And I actually saw from Baseball America, they were interviewing a bunch of scouts from around the league about prospects who appear to have busted and what they think of them now. And Kirilov was on that list. And he was one of the few on that list who they were like, yeah, still really believe in this guy. He's going to be great. Uh, I still believe in him too, but not if he can't get that wrist right. And that's discouraging to hear. It is extremely discouraging. Chris, I feel like you might have wrote up Torkelson as a post-hype sleeper. Uh, Torkelson is in my sleepers 1.0, which went out today, yesterday. Yeah, yesterday. Monday is a better way to phrase that. And um, look, there's not a lot to be excited about from his rookie season, but his expected stats were worse than his actual, or his expected stats were better than his actual stats. His expected stats weren't great. Like I said, but he did hit the ball relatively hard. This is still a guy who was a high end prospect a year ago. So I just, I love taking a flyer on this kind of profile, especially with Comerica park, moving the fences in. Hopefully it will be a more conducive place to hitting. I'm fine taking a final round flyer on Spencer Torkelson. Three names post, uh, four names post 480p. These are the deepest of formats. If you play in draft and hold leagues or best ball or anything like that, JD Davis looks like he might have some playing time with the Giants. Carlos Santana signed with the Pirates. Brandon Belt signed with the Blue Jays. He's finally out of Oracle Park. You know, can he stay healthy enough to do anything? And Dom Smith, what's dead may never die. I will never give up, has signed with the Washington <laughs> Nationals. So, uh, if I nothing else, Belt, I think Belt has play. sleeper appeal. Yeah, mm-hmm. he was coming. His best season of his career was 2021, and and then he followed it up with a disaster where he ha- was dealing with a knee injury all year. I and he was really good in 2022. Yeah. Small, tiny sample. 2020 size, also, but, yeah. Um, yes. <laughs> uh, yeah, I I don't feel confident he's gonna like. He'll probably be a platoon player in Toronto, but it's a situation where he could earn more playing time just by performing. So mm-hmm. I think. Certainly, I'd take him ahead of like Carlos Santana and J.D. Davis. Yeah, this is one of those where, like like with LeMahieu and, and someone that we were to Danny Jansen yesterday, maybe, someone else we were talking about yesterday, there, there's a path to, no, it was MJ Melendez, where one thing that it's worth thinking about with a player like this is like, yeah, we don't know if they're going to play every day. And that's why their price is so low, in addition to the concerns about them being good enough to play every day. But... If Brandon Belt does hit like he did in 2020 or anything close to that, the the it's not linear growth in terms of his value. You know, it's not like, well, he could be a late round player. It's like, well, no, this guy could be like a top 100 hitter if he hits well enough to force his way into the lineup. And if he doesn't, you just drop him. It costs you nothing. Right. Yep. All right, that'll do it for First Base. For Scott and Chris, I am Frank. Thank you all for listening and watching Fantasy Baseball today. We'll be back again tomorrow with Second Base. Bye-bye. 